Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Babs Bean. Babs is a specialist in non-toxic and natural dyeing, inks, and printmaking with a focus on bioregional regenerative textile systems. She's the author of Botanical Inks, as well as the founder of the Botanical Inks Natural Dye Studio and the Bristol Cloth Project. She's been featured on BBC News, BBC Country File, and Sky News. You can find Babs and her work at botanicalinks.com. Babs, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've got your book here with me. It's uh, just beautiful, a work of art. And I would guess it's the book on the subject. I haven't seen anything else that's as comprehensive. Uh, So thank you very much for this. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Where did you find the subject of botanical inks? Where and when? Um, And what about it has captivated you? Um, Gosh, I feel like it's such a long time ago now. I, um, I originally came across plant dyeing when I was at university. So quite a long time ago now, about 20 years ago. And um, I I heard from a friend who was traveling in India about the natural dye block printing in Jaipur. And I was deeply fascinated by it, um, by the handmade approach and by the, um, the local sourcing of everything. And I had the opportunity to go over and stay with a family who have a family-run business with block printing in Jaipur. And um, I got to learn the whole process. And it was it was a very strong contrast to the experience of being in the print studio where I was studying at uni. I was doing surface design at LCC, which is part of the University of the Arts London. And there it's like a <clears throat> very kind of mechanical um like big studio with lots of like plastic based inks being used for printing a lot of metal kind of machinery and racks and always a, a heavy toxic smell of vapor in the air from all the materials and a lot of gunk going down the sink and into the bins the bins overflowing at the end of every day just a scene of like waste and toxicity really which was quite jarring when like the whole concept of creating art is wanting to create beauty in the world. And it seemed strange to me that it was being done in such a, an ugly way. But being in India, in Jaipur, and seeing these ancient traditions for creating really beautiful art, every print being done individually by hand with a hand-carved wooden block made from a local teak tree and local natural vegetable inks mixed by hand, um, every every element of the process done by a different master. So you'd have a master of the ink making and of the printing and of the carving. And they would have spent at least seven years of their life learning the skill, which was handed down from their parent. And, you know, there's just so much meaning and intention to everything and skill. And, um, yeah, it was just like the atmosphere there. I just remember it just being like peaceful and quiet with the soft breeze just kind of, wafting through and you know like no kind of toxic smells in the air and just beautiful fabrics and colors and the the image you get when a whole bolt of cloth has been printed is um you have these repeat block impressions and every single one is unique and that uniqueness gives such a 
character and charm that you, you can't match with something that's been identically replicated by a machine. And so it, it felt like really holistic, you know, the, the traditional sense and that it was done with such skill and beautiful materials. Like it's just, it, there's just so much more to it than the kind of the Western modern approach, which seems to have lost all the skill and meaning and be doing everything in a very toxic way. Um, yeah. So that, that experience really changed me and how I wanted to be an artist and creative. Yeah. Thank you for those visuals. That's, I, I was, I felt like I was there with you for a second. Um, what is this uh, fiber shed model? So the fiber shed model, it's um, basically was born in Northern California and um, coined by a, a lady called R Rebecca Burgess, who's a natural dyer and a beautiful human being. And um, she basically wanted to create a wardrobe of clothing using completely locally sourced materials and she set up a crowdfunder and, and went about it, got a lot of interest and realized that to do it, she it was probably going to take her about 10 years of her life to do it by herself. You know, getting all of the local wools and cottons and dye plants to dye them and then hand knitting and hand weaving and so on, tailoring. So it made sense that she would connect with other people who had skills in her local area to um, collaborate and make the items in a quicker way. And so she did that and in the process created a map of all of the local um, growers, fiber farmers, ranchers, dye growers, um, knitters, spinners, weavers, tailors, everyone in a textile um, system and within a 150 mile radius. So she had this map and realized that, you know, this is something that probably a lot of other people could also make use of. And, you know, very clever women decided to create this, um, this like open source map for people to use. And it quickly snowballed into what's become the fiber shed. And you can look it up. I think it's fibershed.net is the kind of the overall global platform. This thing has spread from, North California to all over the States to globally. So where I live, we have a fiber shed Southwest and there's like a bunch of others in the UK and in many other countries across the world now. Um, and if you go on fibershed.net, you can, I think, go on and see all of the affiliate fiber sheds listed on there for all the other countries. And so, yeah, somewhere you can go, if you're looking to create something locally, you can see what's available and what skill is available, so materials and skill through this website. And if you're a designer, it means you can put together a range that is completely locally grown and made, which is what we need because at the moment our global textile and fashion industry is, um, it has a nonsensical system where items are being grown in one place, composed in another, processed in another, and there's so much international travel going between many different continents to make very low quality clothing that doesn't last very long. And it's, it's just incredibly toxic, the amount of transport. Um, so relocalizing is really important for so many reasons, not just because of the transport, because you also have transparency about how things are being grown, if they're being grown without 
chemicals, which the fiber shed model is really, is really clear about everything has to be grown without any toxic chemicals. So whether that's organic or just without the organic certification, just without chemicals is fine. Um, there's no, well, there's transparency about who's making things and how they're being treated. The, you know, you can, you can see who the people are in the factories and understand how they're being paid and all this stuff, you know, like when things are local, they're transparent and accessible and traceable. So you can know what's going on and if it's a healthy system or not, or if there's land or animals or people that are being um, mistreated. How does the Bristol Cloth Project fit into that? So Bristol Cloth is one of the case studies in the Fiber Shed book. And um, Bristol Cloth, it demonstrates a locally sourced and locally manufactured textile for England. So it's very hard to, well, at the time of making the Bristol Cloth, it was very hard to find any kind of textiles or fashion that was entirely locally grown and made. And um, the idea was to well, what was missing from our supply chain was actually a fabric as a starting point. Um, we have a lot of wool production in the UK, but it's not necessarily being processed in a non-toxic way or processed locally. Um, or we'll have other fibres that are not grown in the UK, like cotton or hemp that we source from outside the UK, and then we'll bring them in and and process and manufacture them here. It's very hard to find something that's completely locally sourced. So that was that was the desire. Um, and so wool is really the main fiber crop that we have. So it made sense to work with that. So we have a really beautiful Shetland wool, which is probably the finest wool that comes from the UK. Um, it's incredibly soft and strong. Um, so we have a, a Shetland lamb's wool that we use and I dye it with heritage organic natural dyes that you would find throughout history in um in English um buildings and textiles and productions um things that would have been used by William Morris and that you'll still find evidence of throughout all the historical buildings and palaces across the country um so we, I used madder root and wildflower for the first edition, which are two of our most commonly used natural dyes throughout history. Um, so one is a red and the other is a yellow, and together they give an orange and have very good, strong color fastness, so they last a very long time. And, um, and then it's woven uh, locally as well at the Bristol Weaving Mill, which is run by um, solely by women, very skilled um, female artisans and so yeah so the the idea is that it's completely locally sourced so there's minimized transportation I have relationships with everyone in the production chain I know how things are being made I know how things how people are being treated I've particularly asked that where chemicals would normally be used they be removed from the systems so for example when the wool's being scoured, it would normally be scoured with a synthetic detergent. And I've replaced that with an organic natural Castile soap, um, specifically by my request. And then also at the spinning mill, um, 
normally an oil is put on, a synthetic oil is put onto the wool to make it go through the spinning machine better, which I never knew before, um, but my spinner let me know and um, was happy to to honour my, my needs for the production and take it out. And what it does, it just means that it breaks more often as it's going through the machine, so it just takes longer to get everything through. <laughs> Um, so he charged me a little bit more for the extra time and that's it. Um, but I know that everything that's gone into the Bristol cloth has been done. So with the highest skills, the highest care without any toxic synthetic chemicals, completely natural materials are non-toxic. And so the finished item is safe to be made, it's safe to wear against your skin and to eventually go back into the soil at the end of its useful life cycle. And it goes back to the soil's biological nutrients rather than pollutants. And so that's that's the whole beauty of the, the system is that it's harm-free, it's respectful to everyone involved, it's completely local, it's of this land and people, and it's mimicking nature. It's creating things in a way where everything that we take, we can give back as food to where it originally came from. And that cycle of life will just continue. What are some candidates for natural dyes? Well, I mean, so traditionally in, um, in old dye gardens in the UK, you'd find things like madder root, wildflower, uh, woad, which contains indigo for a blue, things like um, broom, which is a yellow, um, weld, marigold, oh, I said weld already, um, goldenrod, marigold, there's lots of yellow plants, um, comfrey, um, for greens, and there's dyas alkanet, ladies' bed straw, um, there's just so many. And they're, they're often things that are also used medicinally as herbs. Do you have any favorites? I, I don't really. Um, at the moment, I'm. I'm. Um, what am I really enjoy? I've been really enjoying nettle recently. Are there any mushrooms that you could use? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, mushroom dyeing is a whole other kind of area of interest. There's there's books written just about mushroom dyeing. There's some incredible mushroom dyers actually in the states on the west coast who can make entire rainbows from different local mushrooms. Um, it's not something that I delve into too much here, simply because we don't have that much wild land where you can access an abundance of mushrooms. And it feels like mushrooms are precious. And mm. it makes more sense to me to be working with and also promoting other people to work with um, things that are abundant. In the book, you write about uh, going to where the, quote, energy of the plant is to get the richest color. Can you talk us through what that means to you? Sure. Yeah. So, so I like to think of it as, um, the cycle of the year going through the four seasons. And so in the spring, the energy of the plant is with the rising sap that's coming from the ground and rising back up above, pushing the um, green shoots up above land. And so you have that green shoot energy and that's when we go to eat, you know, like the wild garlic and nettles and these things that flush our systems. And, um, 
And at that point of the year, you'd, you'd be working with those kinds of plants for the color. You get a much stronger color from nettle at this point in the season than you do at the end of the summer when the energy of the plant is no longer there. It's gone into the seeds. In the summer, that's when the, the energy from the leaf has moved into blooming the flowers. And so we get all these beautiful flower dyes the roses and hollyhocks and marigolds. Um, so you, you capture the energy of the plant from the flowers at that time. And then in the autumn, the, the flowers will, they will start to fruit. And so the energy is then in the fruit. So we'll be harvesting things like elderberries, blackberries, any kind of berries really, and, and fruits and nuts. So walnuts and chestnut husks, acorns, even gall nuts, which aren't really nuts, but um, something that's ready to harvest at that time of year. And then so from the autumn or fall, the energy of the plants starts to go back downwards into the ground, into the roots. And so then we'll be looking for things like dock roots, dandelion roots, um, rhubarb roots. We'll get amazing rich colours from the roots over the winter. And actually, if you wait until the end of the winter, when the most amount of nutrient and minerals have been stored in those roots, that's when you'll get the richest colors if you harvest. So maybe around January, February, even March, like the very ends of winter. And then it will start to go back up again into the, into the green shoots and the cycle happens all over again. And it's not to say that you can't harvest different bits of the plant um, at other times of year. Um, it's generally about knowing each plant individually and which parts of it are best to harvest with some awareness of what season you're working in as well. So uh, now that we've talked a little bit about natural inks, let's talk about uh, natural fibers for a second. Cool. What are the two groups of natural fibers and do you have any favorites within those groups? I grew up on a large Angora goat ranch in central Texas, so mohair is my default favorite. Wow, amazing. Um, gosh, I love goats. Um, so the different types of fiber are basically very simply put into two different categories. You've got the protein fibers, which are from animals, things like wool, alpaca, mohair, like you said, um, yeah, anything that's derived from animals, so silk. Uh, and then you have the cellulose fibers, which are plant fibers. So anything that's derived from plants. So that can be Things like cotton, um, linen, hemp, ramey. And um, when you have these two different categories, then you are able to know how to treat them differently because in terms of natural dyeing, the two different types of fiber will take colors very differently and they'll need different processing. What are your thoughts on silk? Well, yeah, sadly, most silk is made in a, in a not very kind way. Um, I don't like to buy conventional silk because the silkworm is boiled alive in the cocoon. And the reason they do this is because the cocoon is basically composed of one or two um, singular threads that wind round and round to make this spherical cocoon that the larvae is inside. And so they, they boil the whole thing alive. Um, they, they boil the cocoon with the larvae in because they don't want it to hatch out because if it hatches out, it will break that continuous thread in several places, 
which means the spinning of it will be much more labor intensive and therefore more expensive. But then something that I work with is called pea silk or ahimsa silk in India. And it's where they allow the larvae to hatch out as a moth and have a full life cycle. It mates and it dies naturally. And, and so they have this, this cocoon that's been broken and it, yeah, takes longer to spin. Um, but it creates equally beautiful and lustrous silk to the, um, non-cruelty free version. Um, so yeah, so I, I feel okay about using pea silk, but I, I don't like to work with any other kind of silk. It doesn't feel good. I've been harvesting a lot of nettle lately, uh, doing a lot of, you know, making a lot of, uh, things out of nettle. How challenging is it to make fiber from nettle? Um, it's not something I've ever personally done, but, um, there is a huge tradition for making cloth from nettle, um, well, from ramy, which is a type of nettle. Um, traditionally, it comes from the Himalayas. And they use an approach where they, um, it's, it's basically the stalk of the plant. It's called a bast fiber. And it, the inside the inside fiber of the stalk or the bast is is basically what's used as the thread and it has to be retted out. So they have to remove the outer husk without damaging the inside thread. And this is traditionally done by covering it or putting it in a huge heap, covering it with probably cow urine and then letting it ferment for several weeks. And it takes skill to know exactly which point it's had enough fermentation to break off the outer husk and use the inner piece and if they leave it too long then the inside will start to ferment and and rot as well and then it will be ruined so it's a really beautiful natural non-toxic textile art although these days when it's when nettles produced on more of a commercial scale it's actually done with synthetic chemicals so not quite so non-toxic um but yeah i think the the traditional approach is really beautiful. I I wouldn't say that it's easy. Um, I think it takes skill that's um, you know incredibly valuable. And yeah, I and mean, then if you're referring to the more commercial approach, I, how easy that is, I don't know. I imagine much easier with large scale machinery, but then kind of you know not not done in such a beautiful way. What percentage of the cloth that you work with is purchased versus produced by you? Well, I have a few different strings to my bow. Um, so for the Bristol cloth, I mean, that's... Sorry, what was the question again? Which what... Oh, pardon me. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what percentage of the cloth that you work with is purchased versus produced uh, by you? Okay, so the only cloth that I produce is the Bristol cloth mm-hmm. um, using the local circular system. Gosh, I don't know about percentages, but I have produced and sold a, a large amount of of Bristol cloth. Two hundred meters in the first production, another two hundred in the second, and then wow. and then the recent edition is cashmere, which is the um, it's the only cashmere that comes from England, from a cashmere goat farm in Exmoor, and it's a holistic farm like beautiful like incredible animals incredible fiber 
um, again, dyed with local heritage plants, so with indigo and madder roots, and then locally woven in Bristol. And that, I only made 30 blanket scarves. And I can't think off the top of my head how much meterage that is in total, but perhaps it's about 70. So that's everything that I've produced personally. And then in terms of the amount that I buy in, so I really just buy in um, organic UK grown pea silk. And I use that a lot in my workshops, especially for bundle dyeing. And I have no idea how much of that I bought over the years. And then, you know, also occasionally we'll work with local wools and linen and hemp and uh, nettle from Europe that's woven in England. And not so much of that stuff. I tend to work more with the local protein fibers. And you may have already said, but where would you recommend one purchase uh, their natural cloth? From me. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. How long would you say a natural dye project would take for a novice from beginning to end? So I, I tend to say it takes at least three days for, you know, for a small production, for a small project. Um, you need a day just to wash and scour and mordant your fibers and then a day to dye them. And generally I'll leave them overnight and then a third day to um to then do any modifications or um, washing and drying. So you used a couple terms there, uh, if we could kind of uh, drill down on them. Mm-hmm. What is a mordant and how is it utilized? So a mordant is a fixative. It comes from the Latin word mordere, which means to bite. So it's a plant or mineral substance that you pre-treat your fiber with so that it allows the color to bite into the cloth and hold onto it. So it helps you to get richer or brighter or just deeper, more saturated colors that also last much longer. What are modifiers? And uh, could you tell us how to use a wood ash modifier? Sure. So modifiers are ways that you can modify your colors to get a wider range of colors from just one dye. So I tend to use an alkaline or an acid modifier and alkalines. um, There'll be things like soap is quite high alkaline or wood ash is another thing. Um, And then for the acids, a natural acidic modifier would be a citrus like lemon juice or apple cider vinegar or any other kind of vinegar. Um, And what tends to happen is that the acids will shift your colors towards yellow and orange to like warmer, lighter colors. And then the alkalis will tend to shift them in the opposite direction to just more kind of murky, muted tones, often going towards green or purple. And so you asked about wood ash. So it's a very simple recipe for making a wood ash uh, water for a modifier. It's also called a lye, L-Y-E. So this is something that's used for traditional soap making. So you simply get ash from a wood fire and it has to be just the ash of wood, not anything else like newspaper or, you know, anything foreign. So if you've got a wood burner and you've literally just got wood going in there, not MDF or anything like that, just 100% pure wood, you can take the ash and you cover it with water 
And then you just mix it up and then leave it to settle and leave it overnight. And the next day you come back and you just pour off the top layer of just the liquid and you leave all the sediment in the bottom. And then that liquid that you poured off, that is your wood ash water or your lye. And it will be very high alkaline. It's something that you can add to your dye pots or dip your um, dyed items into to modify the colors um, towards a more of an alkaline range of color outcomes. And uh, would the dif- would different woods produce like different alkaline mineral salt solutions? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. And that's not something that I have inquired into. I was really pleased uh, when we uh, spoke off recording uh, to find that you've been doing a bit of um, uh, biodynamic education and even uh, ventured into astro herbalism. I was wondering if you could speak on any of your impressions or uh, anything you've taken away from uh, those subjects? So, well, yeah, it's it's more about the growing of the dye plants. And so more recently, in the last few years, I've been growing my own dye garden and taking locally, um, lo- locally sourced seeds from like local nature reserves that are, you know, from this land and traditionally would have been used as dye plants and growing them in my back garden. My interest is kind of, yeah, it's coming from the sensory herbalism side of things as well, wanting to to grow things that I can work with in a medicinal way, not just for their color, but for the deeper meanings and connections with the plants as a dyer and an artist. And I've recently done a growing course, which was very focused on agroecology and permaculture, um, land sovereignty and biodynamics, like a whole range of different things. Um, So looking a lot as well at things like working with pollinator-friendly plants and um, companion planting and uh, like natural, um, like natural pest control Um, yeah, all these different things and trying to just kind of digest this all down into a quite simple DIY, like home scale, medicinal herbal dye garden. (laughs) So biodynamics is, is part of this, you know, like I really appreciate the value of planting your seeds or planting out plantlings at the right time of the moon cycle. And like, when is the best time to, to be composting? Yeah. And I feel like there's so much to learn about this area and I'm only just starting to tap into it. And I find it really juicy and exciting. I have like a hunger to learn a lot more. Um, but I feel like I'm just starting with the phases of the moon and how that applies to certain actions in the garden. And, and now I'm wanting to learn more about the different planets and how the different plants relate to the different planets. And yeah, I'm like, I don't even know what I don't know. But I'm, I'm really curious and fascinated. Well, then let's, uh, if, if you would, please, let's play out a scenario. Let's say you're producing a uh, biodynamic themed uh, natural ink and, and fiber cloth. And the plants you can use are nettle, dandelion, yarrow, valerian, chamomile, oak, and, and horsetail reed. And the animals would be uh, cows and and maybe sheep and goats. 
if you could just kind of talk through a potential scenario, what fibers would you go with? Um, how would you process them? And then what dyes, mordants, modifiers would you use? Oh my gosh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just uh, pick a path. Okay, so so you said cows, goats, and sheep <laughs> would be the animals. Yeah. Okay, so. I, I would definitely choose, well, I would choose either a cashmere goat or a, um, a Shetland sheep. And so we're working with wool, which could be spun into yarn. Um, so I'll probably be working with hanks of yarn. And so you mentioned nettle, um, which can give some really beautiful greens and potentially modified with iron to give more kind of grayish silvery greens um what else was there yarrow horsetail dandelion valerian chamomile so oak i imagine you might maybe the gall yeah oak gall although the color range is perhaps not so interesting for wool you can mm-hmm. get beige mm-hmm. or a gray or black with iron um chamomile yellows with iron you'd get green and um there was another yellow that you mentioned would you count the dandelion flower dandelion yeah so dandelion root i tend to work with in the winter and that gives really strong bright um quite mustardy yellows um and again that with with it doesn't do much in terms of acid and alkali but with iron it would turn to green so so within there you've got a range of like beige green yellow gray black and what would i do i guess perhaps weave them into some kind of magical cape to wear in (laughs) winter (laughs) fantastic um, I, I'm on your website. Uh, I see the workshops. Can you tell uh, the listeners about some of the workshops you've recently offered, some that you'll be offering in the near future? Sure, yeah. So I next week I have in the UK a couple things coming up. I've got a bundle dyeing with local seasonal flowers workshop, which is on a local organic flower farm. And so we'll be starting with a rose tea tasting um plant meeting to kind of just land in the group and then we'll go out and harvest some flowers whichever ones we're drawn to and just have some time just being in the beauty of being surrounded by flowers and then having this bundle dye session where we scatter flowers everywhere and then roll them up and steam them to tease out the colors or make some really beautiful organic piece silk scarves um and so for those ones, I also, the bundle dyeing, I also have an online workshop and sell kits so people can do it at home. Um, I also have trainings in my studio for people who are looking for more kind of professional training to to work with their own brands. So that's something coming up the week after next, which is a two-day intensive course. And we look at all kinds of different things in that. We go through all the, all the steps of sustainable sourcing um mordanting um, scouring mordanting dyeing using different 
natural dye surface application techniques. So things like shibori tie dye, bundle dye, block prints, green print, um, papazome, a whole bunch of different things. So it's really like a deep dive, really comprehensive, um, yeah, training opportunity. Um, and then I also have an online version that's similar, which is a six part course, which you can spread over six weeks or you can just do as quickly or as slowly as you like. And there's a, there's a course kit that goes with that as well. So that's the natural dye and print initiation course. And then I have a whole load of other things. I'm tending to do more online offerings these days um, because they can just fit into people's different personal schedules and timings. So there's, yeah, there's the initiation course, bundle dyeing. There's how to set up and use your own organic indigo vat, shibori tie dyeing, block printing and screen printing with natural dyes. And then also how to make inks and natural paints. Well, those sound great. I don't know if any of them beat the uh, uh, being out with the flowers, uh, drinking the rose tea and everything. Now that sounds exceptional. Um, Babs, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, Babs at botanicalinks.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you.